Eagles Entertainment. The journey of the draft is driven by AAA. AAA, roadside is their strong side. Make AAA a part of your game day today. AAA, go ahead. With the 25th pick in the NFL draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and the national championship game is over. The Alabama Crimson Tide came out on top over the Ohio State Buckeyes, and we're going to break down all of the biggest topics to come out of this matchup. But before we get there, let's first start things off with Scout Stories. Eagles College Scouting Director Anthony Patch is back once again to talk about Eagles defensive tackle Fletcher Cox and what it was like scouting him coming out of Mississippi State back in 2012. What were the memories of him and some of the things that we can take away from that projection and from that situation? We'll hit on that right at the top of the show. Afterwards, we will then transition to Saturday Scouting where Ben Fennell, Dane Brugler, and I will recap this national title game. Who were the big winners from Monday night? Certainly a lot to unpack with all of those guys in that segment. And after that, we will transition to perhaps our final on-the-clock segment where this week Chris McPherson stops by to reign supreme on a debate between Dane, Ben, and I. The topic? Which prospect will see his stock rise most from now until April. Who comes out on top? Find out later in the show before we wrap things up with our draft mailbag where we have a quick round of Would You Rather from one of our listeners at home. A little bit bit of a fun topic there, fun segment uh, that we will get to at the end of this podcast. Before we get there, though, to the start, just a quick reminder, jump onto our Apple Podcast page. Do us that great favor of leaving us a rating, leave us a comment, whether it's a creative question like the one we'll hit on at the end of today's show or a question about a specific prospect, a mock draft that you want us to break down, any segment idea that you want to see. All those things are just a huge, huge help for us as we continue to try and make this show better. But more importantly, we want to try and make this show visible for other football fans looking to learn more about the NFL draft. It really just helps give us a boost over on Apple Podcasts. So appreciate everybody that has taken the time to go over and leave us that rating and leave us that comment. The queue is open right now, so you can go in, jump right up to the front of the line. We're going to try and answer as many of these questions as possible. We will always get to you right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. That being said, let's jump right in. We're going to go starting back in 2012. It's time now for Scout Stories. Pull up a seat. It's time for Scout Stories. Well, joining us this week here on Scout Stories to talk about the Eagles' defensive tackle, Fletcher Cox, is Senior Director of College Scouting, Anthony Patch. And Patch, uh, welcome back to the show, man. Excited to get your thoughts on Fletcher Cox when he was coming out uh, of Mississippi State back in 2012. What were some of your memories of the pre-draft process when it came to uh, number 91? Yeah, Fletcher, you know, small-town Mississippi kid. He he uh, was there, signed with uh, Sylvester Kroon, uh, Groom as a first coach, and Dan Mullen came in. Highly thought of there, you know, unbelievable strength, size, and explosion, and, you know, really guy that they lined everywhere in that front. And so, you know, he was young coming out, but spoken highly of there, you know, just an old country guy and, you know, likes to hunt fish, as you know, and just, you know, nothing bad said about the kid. And just, you know, he had a great, you know, junior year, and that's the year he came out, and you could see that on the tape. And, you know, I remember going back to the process now, Jim Washburn was our, our D-line coach, and, you know, we were going back and forth between him and the Brockers kid from LSU who's had a, you know, a good career for the Rams and still with the, his same team with the Rams now. And, um, you know, Fletcher's been above and beyond expectations taking him. And, uh, you know, I remember sweating out that draft and, you know, the, <laughs> you know the kind, of, the kind of the surprise. And I remember being there and actually a team, 
I won't mention who, but wanted to trade up for us. And it was, a, they were offering a lot of ammo to come up. And it turns out that's who they wanted was Fletcher. And, you know, the one we sweated out, we didn't see coming was, you know, the Poe kid going before us yep. to Kansas City. So, we you know, we didn't see that coming at all. But we were kind of sweating out those last picks going up to there. And, you know, you know, uh, Coach Washburn did a great job. Um, you know, Brett Feach, you know, researching and practice film. But we all felt great with, the you know, Fletcher as a character kid. And just um, he's just an ox, man. We've seen he's, you know, a dominant force for us over the years. And he's been, you know, durable. Um, just big smile on his face, plays the game with passion, and it's been great. So I wanted to, you brought up two names. I was actually that was going to be my follow up. Was I remember that year? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, being here in the building, and, and it was like one of the fir- my first off season. Yeah, it was my first off season here uh, in the Novacare Complex. I remember the big conversation uh, in the media at that point was. You know, Fletcher Cox versus Michael Brockers versus Don Terry Poe. Uh, there was a big year for the corners. I think that was Mo Claiborne and Gilmore and, and Kirkpatrick. But the other guy everyone was talking about was Keekley. But when you're looking at those three D tackles, and not necessarily in the in that case, but when you're uh, you know kind of having those discussions, just take us into how fun is that to be in a in a scouting room in those rooms uh, in those meetings when it's like all right we're we're going to have to kind of stack the board here and have these conversations and pick out how we're going to stack you know, player A versus player B versus player C. What are those meetings like, uh, you know, being inside? Them? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. And that's what you do though. You, you know, every, every, every pick you have, you know, if this guy's not here, you have this guy, you know, you have a group of three or four guys, but you know, in terms of position with the Poe and, you know, the Brockers and the Cox, I mean, I remember going to coach Washburn's office and, Beach and he's asking us, can we can we get practice tape? I and mean, we were going down to practice tape, get a one-on-one practice tape, just the <laughs> you know, the cross off the final stuff with him. It, it, it you know, it it's it gets a little crazy. But again, you're just you're trying to go over, you know, as much as you can and talking to as many as people as you can. But I do remember going into Jim's office and he'd be like, Is there any way we can get practice tape? We usually can't, you know, schools yeah. won't give you that. But you know, we had practice LSU tape, we had you know, the Mississippi practice tape. I mean, it got to that point, like, you know, the combine, the, the, the fall tape wasn't good enough. Let's go. Cause it was, <laughs> that was close. So it was, yeah. He, he brought back memories right there, Fran, you know, <laughs> that's good. So, I love that. Um, yeah, you know, Fletch has been unbelievable. Like I said, his durability and his fight through adversity and, you know, he's been an absolute force inside for us. And at Mississippi state, they aligned him everywhere. And that was the other yep. thing, you know, was could this guy be a, just a deep tackle on the forefront, but they lined him at end and all that. And he, you know, he, you know, sack numbers, TFL numbers were great. And, you know, so he's even been better, you know, than we thought. So I, I remember the, the, them lining him up off the end and you just see this guy's 300 some pounds, you know, flying off the edge. Um, you know, just a, a crazy, crazy talent patch. Thanks so much for joining us here on the journey to the draft podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you again soon, man. All right, Fran. Thank you. Hope you guys enjoyed that segment with Anthony Patch. And a couple big takeaways. As I said there, that was my first offseason. I had just finished the 2011 season. That was my first season working for the Eagles. So my first full offseason was that 2012 spring. And 
as I mentioned, there was a lot of talk about who the Eagles were going to take. You know, Luke Heakley was there. They had the 3D tackles. And I remember sitting up one night, uh, going into one of the position rooms at the Novacare Complex and watching film of those 3D tackles all night long, just back to back to back and trying to come up with the big takeaways. And for me, uh, Fletcher Cox was just so, so impressive with his blend of movement and power uh, and his ability to just get home and be productive from a multiple multitude of techniques. He was just so, so intriguing. And obviously, Michael Brockers uh, turned into a very good player. Poe had some good years in the league as well. But uh, I thought the big takeaway there um, from Patch was just you know, some of the insight he gave you into what goes into trying to stack the board. And you're always trying to have those conversations with guys that are very, very close at the same position. How do they compare? You're trying to find as many delineating factors as possible. So, hey, we saw this guy at the Senior Bowl. We saw this guy uh, up close here or up close there. We got to see him, uh, you know, at, at the Combine. He came in. How did the guys do, What you know, side by side when they went to the Combine? Not just on the field, but when we met with them at night. How did the guys do on their visits? You heard, uh, you know, uh, Patch mentioned the the college film, the the practice film, the one on ones. You're trying to find as many of those factors to try and create some separation as possible. So when you say, when you hear scouts say, when you hear general managers and coaches say, everything is just a piece of the puzzle, just a piece of the pie. That's what they mean when it comes to trying to stack the board and create some separation from these guys. It's all about trying to eliminate and separate. And, and so all of those things certainly uh, came into play there when it came to trying to separate Fletcher Cox from the pack. And I thought the other big thing there from Patch was just the, you know, the act of preparing for all situations because you know, you're going to go into a draft and you have to kind of expect the unexpected. Sometimes uh, the guy that you like, somebody trades up for him or, or somebody you know, takes him that you weren't necessarily expecting or the adverse happens. Maybe somebody falls to you that you weren't expecting to fall. Maybe somebody falls into your lap that you didn't think there was any shot that they were going to be there. So that's why everybody's always going to do their due diligence in terms of all of the players that are on the board, try and get as much information as possible. You're not going to get you know, a full litany of information on every single player on the board. There's just, uh, you know, obviously you got the, the human element there. There's not enough time to be able to do that. That being said, you're going to try and put as much time into all of those decisions over the next few months. That's what these next few months are all about. Then when you get to draft weekend, then you're just kind of relying back on those decisions that you made off those conversations that you had in draft meetings over the winter, over the, the course of the spring, multiple times all throughout the next few months. So uh, really good insight there from Anthony Patch. Hope you guys enjoyed that segment. That being said, let's jump now into this weekend's action. we got to recap this national title game. We're going to start with Saturday Scouting. It's time for Saturday Scouting. All right, time to break down this national title game between Ohio State and Alabama as I welcome in Ben Fennell and Dane Brugler. Guys, uh, I don't want to say it was like an anticlimactic finish to the season because it was still still a fun game, a lot of great players in the field, but all three playoff games, Ben and I were talking about it earlier today offline, like, you know, just not a, not a ton of parity in, in college football. And so this game, uh, you know, look, Alabama took control early and they just kind of took off after that, you know, once he got to the second quarter, uh, this offense kind of stood out. So, Look, we're, we're going to talk through game balls, but we all know, like, all right, these are the guys that were the biggest players in the game. I just want to be able to talk through some of the guys that really kind of helped themselves uh, throughout the course of the night and some of the big storylines coming out. And I guess we'll start. Uh, I'll start giving my game ball, the guy who ended up winning the offensive player of the game, and that's Devontae Smith, the Heisman Trophy winner, the Walter Camp player of the, week, of the year, the Maxwell Award winner. Uh, he just, I mean, he continued to follow through. It was ridiculously productive in the first half. He set a record for, uh, you know, catches in the first half of, or in the half of a game. 
I mean, what, what else can we say about Devontae Smith? There's not a lot to say. Uh, I guess kind of notable that he left with an injury. It doesn't seem like it's anything too serious. He was back out there for the trophy presentation. Um, but, I mean, the guy just finds ways to be productive. Give a lot of credit to that scheme as well. Uh, they find ways to be able to get him open. But we've talked about Smith like every single week this year. So uh, I don't know. There's too much to say on top of what he did in his, uh, you know, career finale. Well, uh, over under the six pick as he get drafted. <laughs> That's a good number that you picked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll push. I'll it's push. Good. Yeah, it's a good, <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a good. I mean, it's going to be a really interesting discussion, man. Because when you talk about the the juxtaposition between him and Jamar Chase and coming in, I mean, I I went back actually the other day and listened to when Jamar Chase opted out. He was like one of the first players to opt out, and we came on the pod. You're like, yeah, like good for Jamar Chase. Like he's got nothing else to prove. He's going to be the first receiver off the board. And here we are a few months later and it's like, Oh, Devontae Smith, like potential third overall pick. You know, he won the Heisman. He did all this stuff. And he was crazy productive. It's going to be a really interesting discussion with those two guys because, um, you know, for everything that's about Devontae Smith, we like, and he, he is so fun to watch. He's outstanding at the catch point. The size is going to scare people off, not scare yeah. people off to that. They're not going to draft him, but that's good. When you're talking about finding ways, we talked in the last segment about how the Eagles tried to find ways to separate Fletcher Cox from Michael Brockers to Dontari Poe. They're going to have, you know, every team in the league is going to have that same discussion when it comes to trying to find that separator between Devontae Smith and Jamar Chase. If you want to throw Jalen Waddle into that mix as well, trying to find ways to be able to stack that board, man. I remember sitting here at this time last year looking at Jamar Chase's incredible season, looking at a uh, history of college football for prolific receiving seasons. I'm looking at Randy Moss at Marshall, Larry Fitzgerald at Pitt. Sitting here again looking at another prolific receiving season. I didn't think anything close to Jamar Chase uh, was in the cards for anybody across college football. It's kind of crazy to have those types of offenses and those types of receiving performances in back-to-back years. Yep. Only uh, Randy Moss had a better receiving season when it comes to touchdown production. Uh, yep. He had 25 touchdown catches in 97. Uh, Devontae Smith with 23 this year. He passed Larry Fitzgerald, uh, what he did in 03, uh, when Larry was robbed of the Heisman that year. And, you know, it's just it's tough because, like, Fran, like you said, the, the body type, that's going to scare some teams. There's no question. Yep. Uh, like you said, not that they wouldn't draft them, but they wouldn't draft them in top 10. Um, and so it's really going to be a team by team thing. And I, I came out with my mock this week or this, this morning, the day after the national title game. And I had Devonte Smith going three to the dolphins. And part of that is because if I'm Miami, I'm thinking, okay, we're moving forward with, uh, Tua as our quarterback. Um, and so what's going to best help him develop as a quarterback and Tua, he needs to figure out the difference between NFL open and college open. And that it's not like they weren't calling downfield plays for him. He was just checking down all the time. A guy like Devonte Smith, who he knows very, very well, can create his own space, has that dynamic athleticism, elite ball skills. That's going to help to develop as a quarterback. And, you know, that some, not everything's going to be wide open for him. And he's still going to be able to, to develop and push it. So I, I like that fit a lot. But again, if Devontae Smith falls to, you know, I say falls, but if he goes, you know, eight or nine overall or something like that, you know, it wouldn't be a surprise just because of that body type. And it's really interesting, Fran. Devontae Smith at that size, obviously prolific yak, but how he's generating his yak, he led the country in receiving yards after contact this year and last year. 
So he's doing something right in that 175 pound frame. Obviously his play strength is much greater than it would suggest. And his play speed is much greater than it suggests. He's a really interesting player. So let me, let me just put this back to you, Dane, because I think it's a really, really interesting conversation. I didn't expect to go here in this episode, but I think the, the point that you brought up was great. When you talk about Tua and the, the question with him now uh, after seeing him as a rookie is like, all right, he's got to figure out the difference between college open and NFL open. The scheme that Steve Sarkeesian employed at down in Alabama in 2019 with getting people open. I think you can look at that twofold and look, well, yeah, look at what they've done to get Devontae Smith open, to get Henry Ruggs open, to get uh, you know uh, Jalen Waddell and, and Jerry Judy open to do you know because schematically they've done some great things over the last two years under Steve Sarkeesian. I know he's a running joke in NFL media circles because of Atlanta and things like that. Throw that out. What he did at Alabama the last two years and what he's going to bring with him to Texas is one of the best systems in college football. And so I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion when you're looking at Devontae because he's, he's a good route runner and he's a, he's a great player. He's a fun player to watch. He's got some of the best hands that I've ever studied of any receiver coming out and the way, and that's combination of hands and ball skills. But you know, that, that it's going to be a really fun discussion when you talk about just how the scheme played into that. Well, Fran, really quick, last night I made the comment about how he's used in the scheme and Raiders Nation came out of nowhere thinking that I was reflecting on John Gruden's usage of Henry Ruggs, which sounds like the Raiders community felt he was misused. And I think there's a little bit of contention in the Philadelphia market on how Jalen Rieger was used. And I think each year you go through these very talented receiver types and how they're then used at the next level is a big determinant on if they're going to be successful or not. So I know he's an interesting receiver, but the fit, the scheme, the usage at the next level is going to be so, so important. Mm. Well, I think it, it, we could go down this, this rabbit hole and have so many different conversations about how that Alabama offense, how, you know, who, who was really responsible for, for what, you know, I mean, in terms of the play calling in terms of Mac Jones and what he did yep. making every right decision, the ball placement was there. Uh, you know, the offensive line giving time to create things around him or the running game uh, to, you know, take some, some of that stress off the passing game. I mean, there's so many different, this Alabama offense as a whole, just so, so impressive. And because of that, I mean, I really think you can point to so many different factors to maybe take away from each one of these yep. prospects. And it's, it's, you don't want to necessarily, uh, you know, downgrade a player because of supporting cast. It just, it makes it a little more challenging to figure out. There's a, a lot of nuance. There's so many layers to the conversation when it comes to an offense and a team and a scheme uh, like that. And with that being said, uh, let's transition now to another player that had a great night uh, on Monday night. Uh, Dane, I know you want to talk about Najee Harris. Yeah, my game ball goes to Najee, who 79 yards rushing, 79 yards receiving, three total touchdowns. And really, this is a game ball that's an exclamation point on a career. Uh, his three touchdowns on Monday night gave him the SEC record for touchdowns in a season. And then he tied Tim Tebow for the record SEC record for touchdowns in a career. Wow. And uh, it just, I, and I say it caps off a career because the way he consistently improved the last two seasons has been awesome. I mean, the summer before his junior year. Uh, so after his sophomore year, I sat down, studied his tape thinking, you know, he's a former five-star guy. He's probably going to be one of the top juniors in this class. I came away pretty disappointed. Uh, I mean, he was always big. He saw the light feet, but he wasn't necessarily the sum of his parts. And he wasn't always efficient with the way he used all of his unique traits. But then after his junior year, you saw, okay, he's an improved player, a prospect who 
maybe he was a third round pick. If he comes out last year, he goes back for a senior year. And now he's got a legitimate chance to be the first back drafted possibly in the first round because of these improvements that he's made the last two years. You see it with his patience. You see it with his tempo. Uh, he's very good understanding of how to get every yard possible. It's not just him lowering his shoulder and just, you know, trying to out physical guys. Uh, it, it, there's a lot more, uh, it, you know, uh, just a lot more finesse to what he's doing. Uh, and that's just, that's saying something for a guy that's that, that big and strong. So, uh, and then I think you factor in the pass catching skills, yep. uh, which are, are well above average for a normal college prospect. And he's going to force several teams in the first round to think long and hard about drafting him. And that is not something I ever expected to say over the summer. And pa- pass pro as well. He talked about you know so- yep. above solid to above average and and receiving uh, pass protection there uh, as well. Ben, uh, any kind of closing thoughts there on on Najee? No, not particularly, but I guess it's a good transition to give out my uh, standout player to the yep. entire offensive line of Alabama. Yep. Alex Leatherwood, Deontay Brown, uh, the right side, Emil Ekafor, Evan Neal is a mammoth human being at 6'7", 360. He's a true sophomore. We'll be talking about him next year. But how about Chris Owens at center, filling in for Landon Dickerson? He's a center and a, a reserve tackle. Considering his career, he never gets to play. He was a four-star at Alabama, barely played his first two years. I love stories like that of guys just doing the work behind the scenes, waiting for their number to be called. Really impressive. So cool to see Landon Dickerson out there doing the coin toss uh, with the captains at the beginning and then late and taking the victory formation with his big knee brace on. Really cool to see him out there. And how about just keeping Mac Jones upright, barely touched, you know, in the in the playoffs and down the stretch of the season, the running the ball opens up the RPO game. You have to make Alabama one-dimensional. And that starts with the offensive line setting the tone in the run game. And then everything opens up. So a little convoluted, a lot of names to, to, to highlight there, but uh more than more than deserving. And certainly that Joe Moore award uh, is going to look great next to that national championship trophy. How awesome was that moment with Landon Dickerson at the end? Like that was like maybe what maybe Crazy. one of my favorite moments of college football this season for sure. It was cool. And it looked like there was a little bit of like campaigning to Saban there on the sideline. <laughs> and then just oh, yeah. that little enthusiasm when he gave him the go-ahead and Saban said in the post game, yeah, he wanted to do it. And like all right, we let him. It was just a really kind of cool moment. And Landon Dickerson, to see him pregame, that guy is enormous. He is yeah, not yeah. one of your squatty, short Jason Kelsey centers. No. This guy is 6'5", 340 at one point in his career, uh, and he is every bit of it. He's a really fun player. And you could just like see him how that like probably scripted out too, because he was probably like fighting like coach. I want to wear pads, you know, just for warm ups. Like I just right. want to warm up with my team. And then like he gets to that point, and you know, he was thinking he's playing chess, thinking like thinking the next move ahead. We're gonna be blowing them out. I want to be out there to kneel down, and he convinced him on the side. That was just awesome. How, yeah. how much do you have to love football to you know not only just be there for your teammates to be in full dress and then to be, you know, full pads the entire game and then to campaign to get in there when you just had surgery on your ACL a few weeks ago. Like I, you have to really love football for that. And that, that goes, I mean, was anybody really, it, it was a surprise in that I just, you know, I didn't expect it, but it wasn't a surprise when you think about Landon Dickerson and everything we've heard about him and his football yep. character and the way he's respected in that locker room. Uh, I mean, it's why, in my first mock draft, I included him uh, in the first round as as I think he's gonna you know can be a starting level guard in this league. Uh, but you know I don't now with the injury, it's hard to figure out what to do with him. Uh, you know because this is he's now had a torn ACL in both knees. 
Um, you know, he couldn't stay healthy at Florida State. You know, where do you draft a player like this that is a first-round talent and a first-round teammate, but, you know, you just worry about the durability? Yeah, I think it's uh, he is certainly um, a really interesting case study. And by the way, when we're talking about uh, just how inspiring that was to be able to see, I think it's interesting to kind of bring that into my one-play takeaway. Another guy who played uh, injured, and a lot of people are talking about that coming out of this game, is Jalen Waddell. And just that first catch he made, that third down conversion over the middle of the field, he comes up limping. He has another catch a little bit later, comes up limping. And you know, there's been a lot of response, a lot of reaction to like, oh, what is this guy thinking? Someone's got to take care of him. Someone's got to you know tell him what's right for him. Uh, I think it just speaks to the fact that this guy really wanted to be out there. And you talked about the love of the game that Landon Dickerson showed. Dane, I think you could say a lot of the same things about Jalen Waddell. Uh, this is a guy that easily could have just hung it up you know, after the injury a couple months ago and said like, yeah, you know what? Like I'm going to go to the, I'm going to get ready for the combine. I'm going to go run four, two, run four, three down there and uh, you know, get drafted in the top 15. He fought to get back and missed what did he miss? Seven, eight, seven, eight games fought to get back for the chance to be able to play in the national title game. I think that speaks a lot to Jalen Waddell and, uh, and who he is and his love for the game. He's one of the most popular players on that roster. Uh, and Nick Saban does not, he went over the top talking about, he compared him to Allen Iverson, to Kobe Bryant, to Michael mm. Jordan, talking about a guy. He, he said, he's like, one, he's one of those guys. That, that's, that's what Nick Saban said about Jalen Waddell. Uh, so that tells you what type of competitor he is, uh, the toughness that he's showing. So yeah, I, I, there were, there were certain points where it was like, you know, he's obviously not healthy. He's obviously trying to try to play through the pain and the, and the discomfort. Um, and you just kind of want to, okay, just get off the field. Just don't hurt it anymore. And, you know, it, it was a little, some of it was a little cringeworthy, but at the same time, you just respect the heck out of a guy that is clearly not a hundred percent, but he just wanted to be out there and contribute. Ben, I know you love that. I know you love, you're, you're a sucker for, for like storylines like that guys that kind of have that mentality. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just great to see and put a human element to this stuff. Like I see Landon Dickerson out there. My brain immediately goes to, man, it's tough to travel on a plane with a torn ACL and that big old brace and the cast and just putting the human element to stuff. We're so focused on what happens, you know, during, during the whistles and under the lights, these are kids going through life and just dealing with all that adversity and stuff. I love the, uh, the human side of it. All right, well, let's get to uh, the rest of our one play takeaways here, Ben, I'll let you uh, go with the next one. What is your one play takeaway from the game? I'm going to go with the longest play by either offense of the night. That was a 44-yard reception by Devontae Smith. Uh, it was a press man fade against Sean Wade in cover one. The single high safety, Josh Proctor, uh, froze a little bit with his eyes in the backfield with the run action. The minus split inside the numbers gave him room to the sideline. But this is more about Sean Wade's ability to not only run, transition, find the ball down the field. He looked like he had a piano on his back on a more than a few plays, whether it was running horizontally with Bolden uh, late in the game or a play like this down the field. I feel better and better about my Rocky Sin comp to Sean Wade. I think he's going to be a safety at the next level. And just to do a, you know, a compliment sandwich, I thought Sean Wade did a great job in run support. He made some good plays in the backfield, had no some question. good licks on Najee Harris. Yep. Uh, and I think that's what he's going to do. I want to play him in the nickel position in the NFL, being a big nickel, more of that safety profile, stick your nose in and run support, be a good blitzer, maybe erase some tight ends and some bigger slot receivers. I think a Rocky Sin or a Jalen Mills isn't that crazy of a comp, uh, even though we think Ohio State corner, why is he not a Cuda or you know Denzel Ward or one of these guys or Marshawn Lattimore? He's just different, and I thought that was a really good visual on some of the things he struggles with. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, Dan. No, I have no idea what to do with Wade. Um, I mean, he just—he's a tough player to talk about because at this point, you're just drafting traits. I mean, even when you watch the 2019 stuff, uh, he wasn't a first rounder based off the 2019 film. You could argue it wasn't a second rounder based off the 2019 film. You were—you just saw a couple splash plays. You saw traits, uh, but you didn't see a lot of consistency with what he was asked to do. And so, I agree. He's a very good athlete, uh, or not a very good athlete, but he's athletic. But does he have the speed necessary? And I don't. Watching him last night, I agree. He just he couldn't keep up speed wise. But some of it looked like it was almost effort. Like he wasn't, you know, busting his tail on every play, which is just really weird. I don't. He know. never I, looked urgent. It didn't look. Yeah, urgent. He, yeah. No, he did it. He looked like he was kind of tentative. Like he was okay. I'm not going to give up the big play here. Uh, or, you know, just trying to, you know, walk the fine line. I don't know. Wade is just, he's a tough player. I'd love to see him go back to school, change positions, be a safety. And let's see if we can kind of correct this thing. But if he comes out for the draft, I don't, it shouldn't shock anybody if he is a day three player. I mean, I, cause I, I just don't, unless he really blows up, uh, you know, workouts, uh, it is really hard to draft him in the first three rounds based off his tape. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go to your one play takeaway, Dane. I'm going with uh, Ohio State tight end Jeremy Ruckert, who, uh, I, you know, saying I'm going to go with one play takeaway, I think most are thinking, oh, that one-handed catch, and that was great. There's no question. But the one play I wanted to highlight was actually one of Master Teague's touchdown runs where Ruckert seals the edge rusher and then climbs up to take out Dylan Moses at the second level, just really helping clear that lane for the score. Uh, and I tweeted about Ruckert before the game uh, that if Ohio State was going to pull this upset – one of the keys is going to have to be Ruckert because his ability to feast over the middle of the field, dominate as a blocker. Uh, I just think he is a a really underutilized player. Uh, and I wrote about him before the game, ranking you know the top prospects in the game. And I received a lot of surprised reaction when I had him higher than you know Sean Wade or some of these other better known players. Ruckert just doesn't get enough credit for his impact on that Buckeyes offense. And part of it is because it's mostly as a blocker. Uh, it, it doesn't get a ton of, of pass targets, but when he does, he takes advantage. He's a big, physical, tough uh, receiver, and he gets the job done as a, as a blocker. So a very well-rounded uh, game. I think he's a chance to be in the, the day two conversation as one of the top three or four tight ends drafted. Interesting. Uh, I have not uh, studied him yet. I've not done a deep dive, but uh, he certainly has made plays, uh, the notable plays over the last couple of weeks uh, in the games that I've watched on TV. Him and Luke Farrell are really good players, both highly touted tight ends, both five stars. They came to Ohio State knowing they don't feature that tight end in the past game, but they're big, they're athletic, they're strong. I think I said to Mike Renner last night after he gave some praise to him, they're the ultimate, did you watch the tape? Because they don't get featured, they don't get a whole lot of targets. You're not going to see them on a whole lot of highlights. Um, but a lot, a lot like the way Nick Vanette kind of came out of Ohio State and carved out a decent career with the Seahawks early on. Um, you really have to just watch the tape and see uh, what he does in the trenches. Uh, Dane, you mentioned Master Teague there, so I figure that's a, a nice segue into just the running back situation for Ohio State in this game. Obviously, they lose Trey Sermon on the opening drive. Uh, was it the, the broken collarbone or some kind of collarbone injury? Um, just overall thoughts on Master Teague and his performance in the, in the spotlight here in this game, and then uh, just what that loss of Trey Sermon meant to this Ohio State team. Yeah, and it's tough because there was obviously a drop-off from Sermon to Teague in terms of uh, play style and production. And so, but I thought Master Teague did what he could. Um, you know, he's not a make-you-miss back. He's a big, bruising bowling ball who's just trying to try and get downhill. 
Um, you know, he's not the most graceful player. So if it's not a clear hole, uh, you know, he's not going to just shoot right through like a Trey Sermon can. So, uh, you know, Master Teague's, uh, he is what he is. And, you know, that's just, uh, that's, that's, that's more of your big bruising runner who uh, is not going to, and I was surprised to see Ohio State uh, run him, uh, you know, east-west as much as they did. You know, you just, you, that's not the type of back that he is. And we saw it, I think it was with that, that fourth down that they went for late in the second half uh, where just master Teague's is not that type of runner. And so, uh, you know, we saw that uh, he, he's a underclassman. So, you know, I'm assuming he'll be back in Columbus next year. Sermon, just really unfortunate. That was the way his college career ended. Um, but, you know, hopefully, you know, we'll see how serious the injury is. Uh, we'll, does that mean he's out for the senior bowl? Maybe, um, unfortunately, but still, I, I think he's, Trey Sermon, with the the way he finished this season, you know, put himself to be in the conversation to be one of the top five or six running backs drafted. Guys, let's talk about Justin Fields. Uh, and I know he was not 100% healthy in this game, certainly nursing the uh, the hip and rib uh, injury that he suffered last week against Clemson. Uh, but overall thoughts on his performance. Dane, I'll come to you first, and then Ben, if you want to follow up afterwards after going through the film. Yeah, and it's tough because obviously, like you said, not not healthy. Um, you know, he's got to be pretty sore from from last week's game. Um, but it's the same. It's the same Justin Fields um, that we've seen that we saw against Clemson. The same Justin Fields we've seen all season, and that's uh, a player that can uh, you know operate really well out of that offense. But when that preferred read is taken away, that's when he struggles. Uh, he doesn't play necessarily with the quickness that you need. And I, you know, I, I think that it's something that is a product of that, that Ohio State offense because Brian Day makes it so easy for uh, to find the vulnerable matchups and to get those mismatches. And it's usually there. It was against Clemson and that Clemson defense uh, had no answer. But the Alabama defense was a big step up from the Clemson defense. And they were taking away that read. They, you know, when pressure got to uh, Fields, he, he felt it a little bit. And you could see how it affected him. So uh, there's so much to like about Fields as a talent. Um, but he's obviously still just, you know, very underdeveloped as a quarterback who has to make his reads, uh, you know, while still understanding the pass rush, um, you know, understanding, you know, what the defense is trying to do and hitting his guy in stride. It's just, it's not always there for him. And it's just, it's more of an experience thing and maybe he'll get there. Maybe he won't, but it's not that he can't do it. It's just, we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, Fran, you know, I really didn't love his performance under pressure last night. I thought his eyes were dropping the second he saw some color uh, in the pocket. He seemed like he was conflicted mentally on whether he wanted to be a break-the-pocket runner or move around in the pocket and still distribute. Um, and it kind of put him in no man's land there. And he just kept going back and forth with looking out of rhythm. But even some of their bigger plays in the past game, I felt like the receivers bailed him out. There was a nice play on an out route to Chris Olave, Olave, excuse me, where I felt like the ball was thrown almost two feet inside and Olave plucked it and pulled it away from the defender. Really good touch and anticipation to the tight end down the middle. But again, a nice one-handed catch. I mean, this is a very unusual game for Fields uh, as far as his accuracy and ball placement. A guy that's been pretty good traditionally once the ball comes out. Uh, he does have a propensity to stare down guys. It's a propensity to hold the ball. But when it comes out, he's always been you know, fairly accurate quarterback and, uh, you know, sitting there last night at 51% completions to finish the day with, without many drops or spikes or throwaways and stuff like that to kill his completion percentage. Uh, I just felt like it was a, a little bit of a different game from Justin Fields, uh, accuracy wise. 
Yep. And I will give, obviously give him credit for, you know, gutting through this injury. Cause it was obviously a, you know, a tough hit that he took uh, last week against Clemson, but not, not his best performance for sure. You mentioned that one big catch by Chris Olave. He was a guy that uh, I highlighted last week in our on the clock segment, Ben, you won the segment though, by talking about Alabama's Christian Barmore. And uh, he showed up multiple times in this game. We saw his ability to kind of get after the quarterback. He was really disruptive. Uh, your guy came through for you in a, in a big way. I thought it was a, a good opportunity opportunity for him to kind of go out on a big stage here in the national title game. Yeah, absolutely. And it was great to uh, throw it back to his Philadelphia roots in the post game saying that they had the Mamba mentality, you know, being the Newman Goretti grad here in Philadelphia. He did a lot of that work when Wyatt Davis went out with that knee injury, but that's okay. Beat the guys you're supposed to beat late in the game when the other team is trying to claw from behind and pass. And you saw Barmore flying to backfields just like we've seen before. Whether it was Marcel Darius or Nick Farrelly or Deron Payne. Uh, Barmore was kind of the darling on defense. And it's those type of games on the national stage that really uh, can accelerate your draft stock. Yeah, Dane, he what, he yep, really go. started to heat up the second half of the year. Uh, you know, he, we talked about it last week. You know, he, he was DT1 since the summer. But it, before, it was based on potential. Now, it's based more off of what he's doing on the field. And really, he always had the traits. And now, he's starting to show up. And it's going to lead to production. So, um, you know, he I think he leads the team in sacks. Uh, that interior disruption is, is no joke. And some of it, he, he beat Josh Myers, who's a projected second-round pick. So, uh, you know, he's, he's a really, really talented player who now he has a decision to make. As a redshirt sophomore, uh, wouldn't be surprised at all if he takes advantage of this opportunity where uh, I, I really don't I – mean, I, I think – I don't want to say it's a shoe-in. He's defensive tackle one uh, for every team, but I think he'd be the, the clear favorite to be the first defensive tackle drafted somewhere probably in the top 25 picks. Um, that's not something I can say confidently about any other defensive tackle in this class. So he's going to have a very interesting decision to make uh, now that the season's over. Yeah, and Fran, I think it's worth reminding fans, Ohio State didn't have Tommy Togiai in the trenches, who I feel like was one of the best defensive players for them the entire season, particularly down the stretch, particularly in that last playoff game against Clemson. Not having him up front to stop the run, maybe make Alabama one-dimensional. Once you saw him on the uh, the COVID list that he wasn't going to be playing, it was just a pit in my stomach that said this, uh, this Ohio State team is uh, going to be drowning. Uh, and your premonitions on that uh, certainly turned out to be true. Alabama uh, racing off to a big victory. Uh, we could talk about the just overall big picture about college football and parity and things of that nature. But uh, we've got some, we've, we'll talk about Christian Barmore and how he won uh, Ben's on the clock last week. Let's get to this week's here on the clock. Let's welcome in Chris McPherson. On the clock. All right. Well, time to welcome in our friend, Chris McPherson, C-Mac. Uh, I don't want to say what the score is because I don't even want to slightly affect your judgment when it comes to picking a winner. I will just say that it is very tight. It is very close. And the thought is, is that this will be the last one, but we'll see uh, ultimately how this one goes. And uh, this week's topic, we're going to cover who we feel from now, now that the last meaningful college football game of the season is, is done, the 2020 season in the books, we'll have an FCS season as we get into March. But the 2020 season now in the books, from now until the draft, who is the guy that can most help himself or will most help himself? I should phrase that better. Who will help themselves most in the next few months as we get up to draft day? So I've got first pick. Dane's got second pick. Ben's got the caboose this week. As I said, I'm not going to give away the score. It's very, very close. 
uh, I will start things off here. And C-Mac, uh, you know, when you talk about players that typically help themselves most during this process, during the pre-draft process from after the season ends, you're usually talking about the guys that are combine superstars, guys that rip up the track, have great, great workouts, and that mainly the guys that we weren't necessarily expecting to have great workouts. I think we all expect that Jalen Waddell from Alabama is going to have a great workout. We all expect that uh, you know some of these guys that we know are great, great athletes are going to go to the combine, going to go to the pro day, whatever they look like this year, and they're going to you know they're going to really, really impress in that venue. That being said. There are some guys that maybe are a little bit under the radar that aren't in the national spotlight, but are going to do exactly that. And I think the guy that I want to point you to is Louisville wide receiver Chartarius Tutu Atwell, five foot nine, 190 pounds. Now, this guy's obviously on the undersized side, but this is a 4'2, legit 4'2 athlete who you know, comes from a powerhouse high school down there in the Miami area, Northwestern High School. I think when you look at Tutu Atwell on film, this guy is lightning in a bottle. He is going to rip up the track wherever he, whenever he uh, you know, works out here during the pre-draft process. He's been listed on the freak list over the last year and change. Uh, you know, talk about like what he can do in the squat and what he can do in the bench press and all that. But Bruce Feldman had him at 426. You had him at 3.9 in the short shuttle, which is just a, a ridiculous number. And again, at 190 pounds, that's not a, a, a super, super small. And there are some other guys that are, that are significantly lighter than that. 5'9", 190 pounds, he is lightning in a bottle. For a guy that's that explosive, we know he's going to get a lot of love. And you're not hearing his name much in mock draft circles right now. But if he goes to the combine and runs 4.26, and people are like, oh, wait a minute, he was first team all-conference back in 2019. He was second team all conference this past year when Louisville had a little bit of a down year. Why aren't we talking about Tutu Atwell more? I'm going to say that he's the guy that's going to help propel his stock highest over the next few months. Did you say 190 pounds, Fran? One, did, he weigh in with, did he weigh in with ski boots on? I have him listed <laughs> at 165 and another verified at one, 158. Hold on, hold on. I've got, the, I've got it from somewhere. I didn't make it up. Give me a second. Give me a second. What do you got, Dane? What do you got, yeah. Dane? Closer to 160 or 190? I'd be I'd be pretty surprised if he comes in at 190. 190. Uh, that's that, that's weighing in with ski hold boots. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'll, I'll he, find where I've got that list. He, he, he went to the buff. My man went to the buffet right before the weigh. You know, we know how this goes. He's going to chug like three gallons of water before he steps on the scale, and then he's going to go to the bathroom and then run a four two. That's how this works. <laughs> he doesn't really have the the body type to to hold 190. So I mean, he he's not a big guy, but at 190. If he comes in at that, that'd be pretty impressive. He's in the same mold as J.J. Nelson, Deshaun Jackson, Taylor Gabriel, K.J. Hamler, who came out last year. So uh, Bruce Feldman and the Athletic had him at 5'9", 190, and that he could tri- and he's getting that from, obviously, the, the Louisville coaching staff, and the, namely that he could squat triple his body weight. So not only did they inflate the body weight, so they said, yeah, they could, he could squat triple that and, ru- and run 4'26". But, you know, hey, if he's 180, you know, that's another 10 pounds. What are we talking about here? Friend, let me ask you, I mean, Watching him this year, uh, I was like, I was impressed with him over the summer when I watched his 2019 stuff. I even included him in my top 50 in August. Yep. And then watching him this year, I don't know. I, I just part of it's the offense, but part of it just he couldn't get going. A lot of a lot of horizontal stuff, a lot of you know just not breaking in enough tackles. I, I don't know. I was a little scared off by that. What say you about his a uh, little bit of an underwhelming uh, 2020 season compared to maybe what we thought? 
I'm going to be honest. I have to do a little more work on the 2020 stuff though, overall. I have not done as much work from 2020. Um, I did. I watched all of his targets from from 19 and only did one game so far uh, from this year. So I don't want to speak uh, on stuff when I haven't necessarily put in the work yet uh, on that film. Dane, so where, where do you have him at? He's tough because he's the size. Uh, I mean, I think he's probably in that third round range for me. Um, you know, he's – you know, he's in a conversation with guys like Elijah Moore out of Ole Miss and, uh, you know, Amari Rogers from Clemson. You know, those undersized guys that are not true outside threats. You want to use them in creative ways. So he's tough because, you know, on one hand, you could look at Hollywood Brown, who was a late first round pick. Uh, and say, okay, well, a team could use the same reasoning with a guy like Atwell because he's going to run well. We know that. Uh, so, but yeah, trying to figure out exactly where he's going to go is a really kind of perplexing, uh, thing, uh, something to think about right now. Ben, how, how would you use him in the NFL? I would hope to get a Deshaun Jackson type of use out of him. I think he's more of an over the top guy than a yards after catch guy and a quick game type of guy. Uh, I think, you know, the KJ Hamler ballpark on early day two, maybe one of those picks in the forties, a team will look at two. Um, but getting the return on investment is going to be interesting. We didn't hear a whole lot of KJ Hamler this year. Hollywood Brown's usage and production hasn't been first round quality and caliber. But if you walk into a Deshaun Jackson type of player, I think any team would obviously be happy to have that type of over the top threat. So that's what you're getting an undersized guy with electric track speed. Now the usage and the team fit is going to be very important. I hope Fran doesn't go back to watch the film from this year and be like, ooh, never mind. Maybe that's Regardless, why. I don't think I'm going to see slow. I think I'm going to still see 4-2, would be my guess. <laughs> All right, Dane, you're up. Number two. All right, so uh, Fran went with an AC, uh, a guy that was the first-team ACC receiver in 19, but he was second ACC team uh, this past year. Well, that's because De'Ami Brown out of North Carolina replaced him on the first team, all ACC team. Uh, and I don't think we're talking enough about this guy. We've talked about him on this pod before. Um, and, you know, I think we're ahead of the curve there. But when you hear people talk about the North Carolina offense, about the two running backs, it's even about Sam Howell coming back next year. De'Ami Brown, uh, I mean, look, uh, he's just not talked about enough. I, he could be a top 10 receiver in this class. Uh, I just came out with the mock draft on The Athletic, my second one. And I had De'Ami Brown going 52 overall. And I've not seen anybody talk about him at that level. I think that when it's all said and done, he could he could end up there. I think we're going to see a, a quote-unquote rise from him uh, as we go through the process. It reminds me a lot of Stephon Diggs. Very similar strengths, weaknesses, uh, one-cut acceleration, a separation quickness. Uh, he's very good at the double move. In high school, he ran a 10, 7, 8, 100 meters. And the last two years, he's averaged over 20 yards per catch. He consistently gets behind the defense, creates those big plays. Uh, he had, uh, I think, five catches this year, 50-plus yards. It's more than Devontae Smith had. So, you know, the, the fact that uh, he has the speed, he can create those big plays, and he also lived in the end zone. He combined for 20 touchdown catches the last two years. Uh, that ranks second most in school history. Uh, 6'1", 195, doesn't have that great build. He needs to cut down on the drops, but – the athleticism, the instincts, that creates the big plays. And so very similar to, to Diggs, I think the workouts are going to continue to highlight his athleticism. And I think more and more uh, people think about it, they're going to keep bumping him up in, in this receiver class. That's my, my question for you, Dan, is what will accelerate him? What will help his draft stock in this process? Will it be, I don't know if he's participating in, in the senior bowl, but, but will his combine be able to, to do that? 
I, whenever he does work out, whether it's at the combine, whether it's at workouts, I, I think that it's really going to open some eyes what he what he runs, and then just the the position specific drills because he's so smooth, so athletic. Like I said, that one cut acceleration is really really impressive. So when I, I think people really stack these, and he's only a junior, so no senior bowl. When when they really stack these receivers and say, okay, well, you know, I've got uh, X Y Z ahead of them, and they really think that, sit down and think about it, they're gonna be like, okay, well, you know, I'll take the speed over over that and just keep bumping them up. I don't know why he's not talked about more. Um, all I know is I just got done with this tape, and I see a guy that's one of the top ten receivers in this draft class. Do you think Friend. ultimately, Dane, that he's that his on-field testing will be better than his on-field workout, or do you feel like do you think it's just a combination of everything? Yeah, I think combination of everything because he's he has the speed. There's no question about it. Uh, the acceleration, the separation quickness, uh, so quick in and out of his breaks. Uh, now, you know, he needs, needs to be consistent catching the ball. And that's something that, you know, was a little up and down. But when you have that athleticism, teams are going to jump all over that. And so, you know, when, uh, you know, an Amar Ross St. Brown, who, uh, you know, I really like, but when he runs, you know, a 448, and then Deami Brown runs a four four one. You know, I think that's that's something that people are going to look at and say, okay, well, maybe Brown's a little bit better. Ben, what when you look at Deami Brown, do you like the uh, Stephon Diggs comparison? No, I didn't really see that type of receiver. To be perfectly honest with you, I have my comp as Mike Wallace. Uh, coming out of Ole Miss in those early years with the Steelers, a bit of a vertical, uh, linear plane guy. It seemed like 90% of his targets were either a smoke at the line, a hitch six yards down the field, or a go down the field. He could run past people. He could use his body really well on back shoulders and really competitive at the catch point. So I like his mix of you know being able to run past guys and be really strong at the catch point, excellent tracking and adjustments. Sam Howell's really good at throwing the ball down the field. I thought Stefan Diggs was much more of a twitchy, snapping everything in and out of breaks, really good with the ball in his hands. Uh, obviously a prolific 2020 season there with Josh Allen. He's turned into the, the cream of the crop as, as far as receiver in the NFL. Um, but this is the fun part of the process and kind of having different projections and different views on the kids. Dane, what, what did scouts miss with Stephon Diggs coming out of Maryland? That's a good question. I mean, because I, I, I've gone back and looked and just because I was curious myself, um, I, I think he wasn't necessarily, I mean, first of all, at Maryland, you know, he, he was stuck in an offense that didn't really have a ton of explosive plays. And, you know, you, you saw a guy who had, he was a good athlete, obviously, uh, but in terms of creating, it wasn't always there. I, I think he was more, it was almost more exciting as a returner than he was at, on on offense. And his combine was good, not great. Um, so, you know, I, I think that all, all those contributed to that, but still for him to fall to, I think the fifth round was pretty surprising. I think with Deami Brown, I, I, I think that I see a little bit more after the catch than Ben does. Um, and, you know, I, I think he, he is a yak threat. He is a big play creator uh, because he's so athletic with his catch and go skills. Um, I, I do think Diggs is a little more reliable catching the ball. And uh, I, I think that that does that is something that separates them right now. But with Brown, I think the athletic profile, uh, although I, I do like the Mike Wallace comp as well. I, I mean, I, I think he can be a, that go threat, but I also think he can help you out underneath as well. Fran, anything you want to do to knock down Deami Brown? No, I would just say like if when it comes to – that's why I asked Dane about is he going to pop in terms of the testing? Is that going to be like the wow factor? Um, but I, I, I like the argument about it, the overall uh, well-rounded approach to the pre-draft process. All right, Ben. Are we saving the best for last? 
I certainly hope so. And I had a trouble picking a receiver here. I don't know if I should go with a Racy McMath, at LSU, or we're all, we're all doing Tony, receivers. No, no you one's know, going to St. Brown. I'm going to keep it in the receiver category here just to, you know, keep it, you know, compact and uh, with the program. Okay. You know, this draft season, the Blazers, obviously, you know, we steal our love around combine time. The guys that test really well with the length and the size. But I'm going to go a different direction here, C-Mac, because I'm going to go with one of the safer players in this draft. And I think as we go through this receiver class into February, March, and April, once you have those ties on your board, I think you're going to start going with the safer player than maybe the high risk, high upside player. And that points me right to Clemson receiver Amari Rogers, who this year really had to step up with their number one receiver, Justin Ross going teams. He hit Deion Kane and Hunter Renfro showed up this year and provided a thousand yards for Trevor Lawrence was number two in the country behind Devonte Smith in yards after catch. When you look at his collective career, those four years at Clemson, he was top five in the country in yards after catch top five in yak per catch. This guy's built like Debo Samuel. He catches everything. He breaks tackles. He fits perfectly in the yak quick game RPO type of offenses that are really bleeding into Sundays from Saturdays. I think he's a really safe player. He had a bunch of 20 yard runs in 2019 on some jet sweeps and end arounds. He's a punt returner came off a crazy ACL tear in like four or five months. He's a great kid off the field. I think when you start looking at your board and saying, man, we have a tie or a cluster of kids it's the amari rogers that i think are going to emerge so i'm not hearing a whole lot of buzz about him we all know about him he's going to be down at the senior bowl i'm seeing some fourth fifth round grades i think he's going to slide into day two and someone's going to be laughing in three and four years that they stole amari rogers and maybe you know the the 50 to 60 picks wow 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 going a little different on a different tangent there with the knocking the workout superstar so he's probably going to run four five five. He won't wow you. He's a squatty looking guy. He doesn't have the length. He's not a blazer. He'd probably look like a running back in the receiver group at the combine. But I'm telling you, C-Mac, this is the kid you want on your football team. So for a little bit different reasons than the other guys and some of the other guys that really win us over in this pre-draft process, I think Amari Rogers will go to a smart team that wants a safe, ready player. I, and what I, what I will say about Rogers too is that you know the when we talk about like Atwell you know the guys that blaze people expect those guys to fly like we I I watch Tutu Atwell for two plays I I, I look at him and say yeah like he's gonna run at least four three with Amari Rogers like he's going to impress teams when he goes into meetings like everything that comes out of that Clemson program is that you know he is like that kind of a guy so you know we could talk about guys that rise up boards and you know that's a media driven thing for the most part but I feel like that's a guy that's going to help himself in the eyes of teams just because of the way he interviews it's funny I have uh in my receiver rankings I have De'Ami Brown nine Amari Rogers 10 so I've got them very very close Mm. I, I think Amari Rogers is He's a day two pick all day. Um, I, I think, yeah, a team would be crazy not to take him on day two. But I will say with him, he's a little more, I mean, I think scheme specific in terms of what what you need for your offense. Like, I think, I don't know that he's going to be a high volume producer as an outside receiver. But if I need a, a slot guy, an inside receiver, a cranked up competitor, I mean, that's Amari Rogers, the play strength, the instincts. Uh, yeah, th- there's a lot of Debo Samuel to his game. That's my comparison as well. I, I think a team, I, I mean, look at like uh, the Jags. You take Trevor Lawrence at one, come back in the third and get Amari Rogers. That's a home run. 
There's like a and C-Mac, C-Mac, really quick, this style of receiver. There's some other guys with questions. Rondell Moore, a great yak receiver and a thick frame. He's obviously off a pretty serious injury two years ago. There's guys like Kadarius Toney that maybe have some off-the-field questions to answer. So when you're grouping these style of receivers all together, it might be Rodgers that emerges as the safer player and the more productive and instant player in this class. This is a tough one. This is a tough one because there's three ways you go about it. You, got, you guys, even though you all picked receivers – Fran with the went with the workout warrior. Dane went with the productive, but not in a you know an offense that's noted for its receivers. Everyone talks about the the running backs and the quarterbacks in North Carolina. Ben going with you know top tier program like Clemson, but you know uber productive. So narrowing these down, okay. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Who am I going to take out first? I'm just going to go I'll go down the list here. My. Let's see. First, I'll take out. I'm going to take out Fran's guy. I'm going to take out Tutu Atwell because I think back to the last couple of drafts with wide receiver. I think about Henry Ruggs, and that was like the marquee event. Um, DK Metcalf the year before that. Everyone wanted to see what they would run, and they ran blazing fast times. But they were also like no, you know, they're well known beforehand. We've had guys that run blazing fast times, but end up not really getting drafted much better. So I don't know if that's really going to help his draft stock. And especially if the weight thing is going to be a question, sure. He could be 190, but if he's coming in a little less than that, is that really going to help his draft stock? Is he going to He'll be 20 pounds? He- he'll be 20 pounds heavier than the Heisman trophy winner. If that's, the you case. know, <laughs> but you know, so, so is it, so again, the question is who could it's who will. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with the will here. That's we got to phrase the question here. Um, so we got our two here. Who's going to be our winner? Who's going to be our winner? The, the winner for this one, he started out the season hot. He's going to bounce back here at the end. Dane's going to get the winner with De'Ami Brown. And the reason I go with De'Ami Brown over Amari Rogers, I feel like with Amari Rogers, with the profile he's had at Clemson, I figured he'd already be much more established at this point. I'm not sure, you know, he'll wow the teams in the interviews and things of that, that nature. But, you know, we're looking for someone who's going to add in the workouts and as well as the production. Now, De'Ami Brown is someone who seems like he's not on people's radars, and uh, I'm going to give him the edge on this one. So, Dane, you get the win here for, uh, you know, la- last night, Bama was a big winner. Today, Dane Brugler gets to be the winner. Uh, you're on <laughs> fire, C-Mac. Uh, just a really good decision. I, I, I think that was I think the right call. And I will say this completely ties it up. Six wins for all three of us over the course of an 18-week season. Uh, so I don't we know. We got a participation trophy. Yeah, well, I don't know if we'll do like strength of schedule. We'll figure out a winner here, uh, you know, somewhere at the end. But um, guys, this was fun. Uh, hope you guys uh, at home enjoyed listening to this uh, throughout the course of the season. We'll see if we figure out some kind of tiebreaker. But uh, thanks again to all three of you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Next up on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. All right, let's get into now our Draft Mailbag. And we've got a question and a five-star review from longtime listener, right? Him, who said, hey, friend, I did a couple of mock drafts, and I came out with some really interesting results on a couple. And it made me wonder, which one would you like personally? So uh, just going to give you the top three choices. Would you rather have? And he gave me three different scenarios. So here are the three scenarios. Alabama corner Patrick Sertain in the first round. Second round. Missouri linebacker Nick Bolton, third round, Oklahoma State wide receiver Tylen Wallace. Three pretty good, three pretty good players there uh, with Sertain, Nick Bolton, Tylen Wallace. Second scenario, 
Virginia Tech corner Caleb Farley, North Carolina linebacker Chaz Surratt, and Alabama center Landon Dickerson. Also, three pretty good players there. Pretty good value. I like the, both of these situations so far. Or number three, Penn State linebacker Micah Parsons, Georgia corner Eric Stokes, and Miami pass rusher Quincy Roche. So those are three really good, uh, pretty good scenarios there when you look at the, all three of those situations, all nine of those players. Very, very talented. My personal thought, I think I would eliminate option three. I would take the Parsons, Stokes, and Roche trio. I would put that to the side and I say, all right, let me get to uh, these first two here. I think I've got to go with the first one. And I think when you look at, all right, we're going to compare Patrick Sertan to Caleb Farley. I think Farley probably has the higher upside. The traits you're probably looking at is probably more so, uh, you know, in terms of the, you know, the, exactly what you want at the outside corner spot. But I'm starting to get into the, the sense, uh, into the mindset of, look, when I'm looking for defensive players, especially guys in the back seven, corner, safety, linebacker, more so linebacker and safety, but I think corner as well. I'm looking for football players, guys that are experienced, guys that are smart, guys that see the game well, they play fast. Maybe they don't always time as fast, but they play fast, they see it, and they're very competitive. And I think you see that with Patrick Sertan. I think you need to do a little bit more projection there with Caleb Farley. And I love Caleb Farley's film. I think he's one of the best players in this draft. But that's how I would compare those two players. Then you get to Nick Bolton versus Chaz Surratt. I think it's kind of the same deal. I think you're looking at Surratt and you're saying, okay, Upside play, former offensive player, just like Caleb Farley. He's you know, very new to the linebacker position. Has only played there for a couple of years. I think there's a lot you could say there about Farley and Surratt, cut from the kind of the same cloth. They play different positions, but uh, more you know, uh, more projection needed than with Nick Bolton, who I think is one of the best linebackers in this draft as well. And Surratt is certainly there uh, in that category. But I think I'll look at Nick Bolton and say, uh, you know, I feel it's more of a sure thing. And then you go to Tylen Wallace versus Landon Dickerson. Now. The thing with both of these guys is both of them have done it at a high level. Landon Dickerson, what he put on film this past season for Alabama, he was awesome. Go back to last year, he was awesome. He's been really banged up over the course of his career, and he added another injury to that resume back in December. So that's going to come into factor. But Tylen Wallace, he's also had a little bit of injury. He's coming off the ACL from 2019. He was healthy all season. I like the way that he battled at the end of the year. You saw him participate in the bowl game when he didn't necessarily need to. I like what you see from Tylen Wallace, and he has also been extremely productive. So that being said, we'll we'll call that one a toss-up. I think I'm going to lead more towards option one. Patrick Sertan, Nick Bolton, Tylen Wallace, right him. Will, great, great question. Really appreciate you uh, throwing that comment up on our Apple podcast page. Follow Wilt's lead. All you got to do is jump on, leave a rating, leave a comment. Really gives us a little bit of a boost here as we get into the meat of draft season. As I said, we'll be back here twice a week. Excited to get things going here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Stay tuned for our episode later this week. It's going to be a fun one right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA.